Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful. Another week, lots of stories to get into, so let's go ahead and jump into our first one. Journalist Maggie Haberman has been doing some very interesting reporting about Donald Trump, uh, some of the inside information about him and things going on around him. And we've talked about some of that reporting previously, but now she's revealed through an Atlantic piece uh, insights that came out of three conversations that she had with him directly. Um, so she sat down, discussed a number of different topics as she breaks down in this Atlantic article, three conversations with Donald Trump by Maggie Haberman. Now, it's too extensive for us to uh, go through in this format, but I'll link in the description below if you're watching on YouTube uh, this article if you want to read it yourself. But Mediate put together kind of some of the highlights that we'll look at right now. So first, despite loads of testimony that indicates otherwise, Trump insists that he was not glued to the television on January 6th. So if you remember, uh, one of the details that we got out of the January 6th committee, as well as just reporting around January 6th, was that Trump on January 6th, while this was all going on, was sitting and watching TV and in a way a little bit flattered. He kind of liked the fact that these supporters were so pro him that they would go and attack the Capitol, that they believed in his lies so avidly that they would put their own life uh, in risk, uh, at risk and possibly get in legal trouble and all that type of stuff because they loved him so much. And he kind of liked that. And so he's disputing that account. Um, I don't believe him, but interesting that he's taking that stance, I guess. Uh, the second detail is Trump was very disappointed that Sidney Powell claimed that no one should have taken her seriously, uh, very seriously on her repeated insistence that the election was stolen. So Sidney Powell, I don't know how you could have missed it, but if you forgot, she was kind of this weird, nebulous position of sort of the personal lawyer, the White House lawyer, not really, just kind of a lawyer going around and making claims on Trump's behalf. At certain points, the Trump team tried to distance themselves from Sidney Powell. Uh, at others, Trump was more cozy with her. But either way, we know she was in close communication with Trump and was going around the country with Rudy Giuliani, uh, making all these wild claims of election fraud, not providing evidence, kept saying they were going to provide evidence and never came out, uh, but they made the claims nevertheless. And then, uh, because she was making so many blatantly false claims about Dominion voting system, uh, systems, they've sued her for a massive amount of money. And that's when her tune changed a little bit. Oh, maybe you shouldn't take me so seriously. Maybe these claims aren't, you know, as factual as I had previously stated because she was in legal trouble. And that apparently, uh, disappointed Trump. He's not mad. He's just disappointed, guys. And third, when pressed about valuable documents that Trump still had in his possession, and this is where the timeline's interesting, the former president admitted we have incredible things. This is before the court ordered search and seizure of his Mar-a-Lago home on August 8th. So before the FBI raided him, and there was already reporting that um, an information public that he had some documents that he wasn't supposed to have or that the uh, archives were trying to get them back. And there was an ongoing process there. And at that point, he probably thinks it's kind of cool. He's a little bit proud of it. And he said, we have, uh, quote, incredible things. Now, he's changed now. No, we didn't have anything. Or if we did have it, it was declassified. But if we did actually have something bad, it was planted. But if it wasn't planted, y'all remember. Uh, so at that point in time before the FBI raid, he was saying almost in a braggy way that he had his hands on those types of documents. And then finally, from this part, uh, Trump reportedly referred to Florida, uh, Florida Ron DeSantis as fat and phony. Now, as I've talked with you guys before, I have a little bit of a policy against 
physical insult going after people's weight or the way they look. And sometimes in politics, that's difficult because you want to take the low jab. Uh, and so in a case like this, when Trump's making fun of somebody else for being fat, it's easy to make, you know, the irony argument of, okay, you're not super thin yourself. Why are you insulting other people for that? But I do believe that's all irrelevant. He shouldn't be saying it. We don't need to turn around and do it to him. Uh, but it is just another example of how childish Trump is. And the fact that because Florida Governor Ron DeSantis seems to be a possible uh, 2024 primary challenger of Trump, uh, that's another reason why Trump is getting petty. And then just a final detail. This is an excerpt from uh, this Atlantic article. Well, I figured, and this is Trump speaking, that the Mitch McConnells would be like him in the sense of strength. And then now uh, Haberman writing, there are plenty of factual problems with the criticism. In fact, McConnell had kept Republican senators in line over and over to advance Trump's policy and personal concerns and generally protect his political standing as the leader of the Republican Party. Nevertheless, Trump said to me in another session using his favorite new nickname from, uh, from McConnell, the old crow's a piece of poop. But he used a different word in the poop. Uh, I keep it nice and clean on this show. So I'll censor that, I guess. But yes, calling the old crow, uh, a naughty word because Trump is a child. That's why. And we are already knew that was widely reported and Trump publicly talks about all of the time how much he doesn't like Mitch McConnell. But another example of him going after, uh, Mitch. And it's fascinating that Haberman points out because it's absolutely true. Trump really shouldn't be so anti-Mitch McConnell as he is because Mitch McConnell worked nonstop while Trump was president to help Trump achieve his policy goals and do bad things. McConnell loved helping Trump do bad things. But just because I guess McConnell didn't claim the election was stolen or uh, hasn't gone completely on board with certain claims that Trump makes, that's why Trump hates him so much. I don't know. Fascinating stuff uh, there from Maggie Haberman. There's an interesting dynamic going on where this former Republican congressman and someone who served as an advisor to the January 6th committee is coming out uh, with a book and doing an interview with 60 Minutes to talk about what he saw, heard, uh, and witnessed being a part of this January 6th committee process, being an advisor. And the reason why it's an interesting dynamic is the January 6th committee members themselves are reportedly upset by this. This is rubbing them the wrong way. And it makes sense because they're all kind of in on a very of public interest type uh, moment. And so they could all be putting out their book right now and doing their big interviews, revealing previously unreported details, but it seems like they're kind of trying to wait until the entire process is over, doing all of the January 6th hearings and stuff before that happens. But this guy is not. And so we'll look at uh, a detail that he reveals, and then we'll see that it's getting confirmed what he revealed in this interview uh, with 60 Minutes, and then talk about kind of the elements around it. Did it hit you at one point that this is way bigger than it appeared in the beginning? Absolutely. You get a real aha moment when you see that the White House switchboard had connected to a rioter's phone while it's happening. That's a big, pretty big aha moment. You get an aha Wait moment. a minute. Someone in the White House was calling one of the rioters while the riot was going on? On January 6th, absolutely. And you know who both ends of that call? I only know one end of that call. I don't know the White House end, which I believe is more important. 
But the thing is, the American people need to know that there are link connections that need to be explored more. Okay, so he, again, was an advisor, so he was privy to this information. Uh, this is Denver Riggleman, again, a former Republican representative. And that detail that he just discussed is now being um, kind of further investigated by media outlets and partially confirmed. So you can see here, uh, from CNN at 4:34 p.m. on January 6, 2021, a cell phone registered to a Capitol rioter who had stormed the building received a phone call from a White House landline, according to records obtained by CNN. The call lasted for only nine minutes. Who placed the call and why remains a mystery, but it is notable as the only known call made from the White House to the phone of a rioter during this critical period. According to the records, the call came from this number, the publicly available number for the White House. Like many businesses, outgoing calls from the White House do not show a specific extension. The call was placed in late afternoon, shortly after former President Donald Trump posted a video message on social media telling the rioters at the home uh, sorry, at the, home, at the Capitol to go home. We love you. You're very special at 4.17 p.m. It's unclear what, if any, connection exists between the White House and the rioter, including whether the call was made by mistake or whether the call went to voicemail. But they note that Denver Riggleman, the guy we just saw, was the one who broke this first. And then the identity has now been confirmed. It belonged to a 26-year-old Trump supporter from Brooklyn, New York, uh, named Antone Lunick, who traveled to Washington, D.C. the night before January 6th with two friends um, and obviously was a part of the riot. So very, very, very concerning that a rioter received a phone call from the White House while he was rioting. <laughs> Again, this was kind of in the big climax of that moment where Trump's now asking them finally to go home. And that's when he receives this call from the White House. Nine seconds, obviously a short call. Um, they don't even know if it connected, but just the fact that the call happened is deeply fascinating. So again, another interesting element of this is that is good to know. That is fascinating. But Denver Riggleman is rubbing the members of uh, the January 6th committee the wrong way by doing this because they're kind of trying to act in a coordinated fashion and not have people going out and leaking different things and um banking on the fact that they were a part of this committee and using their position within that committee right now to start cashing in, making books, all that type of stuff. It is a little weird, but I am happy we got that piece of information because it's very concerning. Um, hopefully this individual will be questioned and will be looked into so that we can see who called him, why'd they call him, and was there some sort of coordination there? Because that would be huge to have confirmation um, about. President Zelensky did an interview with CBS, and there's one moment I want to show you from it that is just dark. It's really dark. And it's pretty much he gets asked, can there be peace um, or stability in Europe if Vladimir Putin stays, you know, in power? Um, and kind of the ramifications of the argument he makes is very, very dark. Can there be stability in Europe if Vladimir Putin remains in power? No. No? I don't have anything to add. My opinion is no. We have observed this over the years. We don't see stability. Specifically, we see challenges and risks, political, economic, food crisis. Obviously, he is not, COVID-19 was not enough for them. Uh, COVID took so many lives. 
uh, caused economic consequences. And this is live. Unfortunately, it did take place. However, simultaneously, we see Russia creating artificially other kinds of crises, and they're very openly discussing the threats to the rest of the world. They started threatening us with nuclear weapons. Will the world depend on one country or one person? The world has to make a decision. We have made our decision. We will not depend on one person who is not a citizen of our country. So, uh, is it true that there won't be stability in Europe if Putin stays in power? Possibly, yes. But it's the elements around that, the, like I said, ramifications of that, that are concerning. Because Zelensky, as much as you would understand as I think we all are hoping that, you know, Putin dies of the cancer he has or something, the uh, political fallout or the even political principle of assassinating a world leader such as Putin would be devastating. So that can't be called for on the part of President Zelensky or be something the West is plotting to do, which I don't think they are. But it is an interesting simulation or a hypothetical to run in your head. What is Europe going to look like after, at some point, hopefully this war comes to an end? And what is going to be the political landscape at that point in time? Because we've seen pretty much most um, countries, you know, in, in Europe and the Western world generally, just completely aggressively stand against Putin, economically and otherwise. And so if... uh Let's say Putin finally backs off, finally this war comes to an end. Do we just continue business as usual? Wait for him to strengthen up his troops once again to try this uh, another time or to try in a different area or whatever it is? Are we just going to wait? Uh, what is going to be the situation at that point? And is it really just waiting for Putin to die? We did hear that he reportedly has cancer, so that could get him and that would be uh, wonderful. I think calling for people's death or hoping for people's death is always kind of, oh, you're not supposed to do that. I feel like it's fair to wish ill health upon Vladimir Putin. Uh, I feel like that's reasonable on my part. Uh, but seeing this interview did make me think, what is going to be the reality after the end of this war? Whether it's because Ukraine, Ukraine continues to stand so uh, strong that Russia isn't able to accomplish what they want. They eventually back off and pretend like they actually were successful. And whatever it is that they do at that point doesn't matter. We're going to be in a very different world where uh, moving forward is going to be an interesting question. Dealing with Putin is going to be an interesting question. Um, and I'm very fascinated to hear what you guys think that reality is going to look like, how you think uh, the rest of the world should deal with Putin after this. Um, and if you do believe, like it seems like Zelensky is very confident about uh, that we can't have a stable Europe with Putin in it. Gavin Newsom was getting interviewed and had an interesting take on the danger of Trump versus the danger of people like DeSantis. And he even 
brought up Tucker Carlson and something we've talked about before where Trump is incredibly dangerous. Trump is, as we talk about all the, t- all the time against our democratic process and poses a huge threat to so many of these important parts of our country. But he's also stupid, right? He's also a fumbling, bumbling dummy. And so almost the evil intentions he may have can't be followed through because he's not able to logistically figure it out. As we saw in 2020, he wasn't able to keep himself in power, even though he tried. And that's why people who have a similar ideology, but are a little bit more competent, scare me a lot like Ron DeSantis or Tucker Carlson, uh, if Tucker Carlson were to get into politics. Gavin Newsom has a similar concern, as you'll see here. I worry about Trump. Uh, worry about Trumpism. I worry more about Tucker Carlson. I worry about Ron DeSantis. He, uh, he's a bully. He threatened the Special Olympics with $27 million in fines. Who does that? Uh, you guys, I mean, I, Abbott, Abbott is light years ahead in policy than DeSantis, but DeSantis weaponized it next level. So, yeah, I worry about Trump because, you know, Trump has proven that democracy is now partisan, mm-hmm. which is remarkable. So he fears DeSantis and Tucker Carlson more, possibly, than he even fears Trump. And so I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this because I haven't actually heard that much from my audience where you see the two fall. Let's just take DeSantis and Trump for now. Um, who do you feel like if they actually got in power would be more dangerous? Because there's multiple different elements of this to think about. Uh, if you're just saying who would you rather run and get the nomination in the Republican Party, that's one question because you could say, and this is one of the things I've expressed before, maybe it would be better if Trump was the nominee in 2024 because he's so politically damaged and maybe the Democrat would have a better chance against him than if DeSantis was a nominee. I don't know, but that could be a consideration. But take that out of the equation for a second. Just who do you think would be a worse president in 2024? Now, I think it's a solid argument to say Trump is still the worst because you don't believe DeSantis would do the openly anti-democratic things that Trump did. And that's a fair argument, uh, and that could definitely convince me. But you do see a situation where DeSantis is able to enact these similar policy goals or even similar uh, ambitions outside of policy, but to a more effective degree, because I think he is a little bit more intelligent um, in, you know, a malicious way. <laughs> he has malicious intelligence, we'll say. And because of that, as a president, maybe he would be able to do some of the bad things that the far right wants to see done in our country better. And the other scary part about it is because DeSantis is less uh, of a caricature, Trump is so obviously, uh, you know, bombastic and makes such a scene every time he speaks that there's some middle of the road people in our country who I think genuinely believe that Trump is bad just because of his vibe, just because he's so blatant and aggressive uh, about the bad things he does. DeSantis comes off a little bit more like a normal politician in the way he speaks. And I think that could convince people who are center right, who didn't like Trump to go back to the Republican Party because they're like, oh, look, it's another statesman, even though, of course, DeSantis is very dangerous um, as well. So 
Interesting stuff. Gavin Newsom is clearly trying to set himself next to Ron DeSantis in many of these conversations because I think he understands if Trump doesn't end up running or is indicted and that stops him because he doesn't want to run while he's indicted, even though he could, uh, whatever it is, then DeSantis is the guy. And if Gavin Newsom is trying to mount his own presidential run, that might be creating a rivalry before the primaries have even started so that people get in their heads, oh, 2024, Newsom, DeSantis. And that could help Gavin Newsom uh, politically. And that may be what he's trying to do. We saw him run those ads in Florida attacking DeSantis. We saw him challenge DeSantis to a CNN debate. And now we're seeing him say he could be more dangerous or he's very scary, uh, even compared to Donald Trump. Fascinating stuff. Let me know what you think in the comments. Ted Cruz uh, attended this event that went on in Austin, Texas. We looked at a moment of Gavin Newsom previously from it, uh, but he, uh, I have a few moments to show you from it, but he got laughed at by the crowd and it was just beautiful because it, to me, represented exactly the way that I felt listening to him say uh, what he said and the way that I felt hearing this criticism from so many Republicans lately about Joe Biden's speech, um, accurately highlighting the threat to democracy that Donald Trump and the MAGA movement pose. So I'll show you it and we'll discuss. It's so, so funny. Biden stand up in Pennsylvania and give a speech bathed in red light like Emperor, Emperor Palpatine, that was bizarre, where he called half the country fascist, or I guess semi-fascist was the term he used. That's not healthy. I've never seen a president give a speech like that. And part of the reason I think... You see, I understand, but... Might... Might have... Might have... Okay, so the part that I think tickled the crowd, we'll say, uh, was the fact that he said, I've never seen another president give a speech like that or never seen someone give a speech like that. Whenever his guy is Trump, Trump has given some incredibly divisive speeches uh, throughout his time, some incredibly antagonistic towards the other side speeches. And at one point, uh, I think I showed on this or I, you know, sent out on one of the other social media platforms a clip of Trump calling Democrats fascist, calling the left fascist. And it just cracks me up because they all pretend like, how could you ever use that word to describe your opposition? And then Trump used the exact same word. Um, so we know this is all fake, whatever. They're not actually that offended by it. But there is a huge difference because you can't get mad at somebody for accurately analyzing a situation, even if the descriptors they have to use to accurately analyze that situation are harsh. It's not our fault that Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election and stay in power regardless of the fact that he lost. It's not our fault that the entire MAGA movement has gotten behind that and has made it a new pattern to deny any election that doesn't go their way and say it was stolen. That's not our fault. We're just identifying that that happened. You can't get offended at us for telling you that the sky is blue, okay? I'm sorry, if you really, really wanted it to be red, but it's blue, you can't get mad at me whenever I tell you uh, you're delusional, <laughs> okay? And it's a similar situation here. Everyone who's freaking out at the words that Biden used, saying it was so divisive, needs to look at themselves for a moment and think, hmm, Maybe what he's saying is true, and it's scary that he has to use those types of words to accurately assess what's going on in our country right now. Now, of course, obviously, all the people I'm uh, hypothetically speaking to would never admit that those descriptors are true, but I just don't think there's any 
substantive argument against what Biden said and against what we've screamed about a ton on this show. And that is why they focus on the red lights. That is why they focus on how divisive it was because they don't actually want to break down why they're not against democracy because clearly they are. They don't want to break down why it isn't such a threat to our democratic process to have someone who tried to stay in power and try to overturn the election and still an entire movement is standing behind those actions. They can't argue against that. So instead, they uh, say it was really mean and it hurt their feelings. Uh, and that's what they stick to. All right. A couple more moments from Ted Cruz's interview here at the Texas uh, Tribune event that was going on. He talks about how all Republicans are lying who are saying they don't care whether or not Trump runs uh, when considering their own presidential ambitions because they're all waiting, as Ted Cruz says, to see what Trump says. Oh, look, everybody's waiting to see what Trump decides. And the reality is he's going to do what he wants to do. I don't know if he's going to run for president. Nobody else does either. Um, one of the prerogatives, he's the former president, one of the prerogatives of, of someone who's a former president is he gets to decide. He gets to make his own decision. Nothing you say, nothing I say is going to influence him, I think, pro or con. He's going to make his own decision, and the rest of the world will react to it. I think we'll find out sometime next year. Uh, there are some Republicans who are beating their chest and running around saying, I'm running no matter what. It doesn't matter what Trump does. That's utter garbage. They're all lying. Like, it does matter. Yeah. yeah so funny enough, it does matter. And uh, he's correct about that. It's silly when Republicans pretend like they don't care at all. Just make one decision independent of that. No, they are all waiting to see what Trump does to decide what they will do. But it's funny to see Ted Cruz as somebody who on the 2016 primary stage was all aggressive towards Trump talking about how bad he was. Uh, and he was so proud and strong as a presidential candidate. And now he has to just sit in the wings and wait for Trump to tell him what he's allowed to do. Uh, super funny. And then here's one moment where he gets heckled. Someone says violence doesn't stop violence. And this is his response when talking about uh, gun violence. In these debates, Look, if we sit down reasonably and say, how can we stop crimes? You would rationally say, well, let's look at both the criminal uses of firearms, but also the defensive uses of firearms that stop crimes. That, that is oh, the it actually is the only thing that does. If you look at violence doesn't solve violence. Look, that's actually why the left wants to abolish the police. And it's why you see. Okay, if you ever hear someone say the left, and that's how they leave it, wants to abolish the police, you can just never believe anything they say ever again. Because I would bet you a single digit percentage of the left wants to abolish the police. It's probably like 1% and they don't even really know what they mean by that. <laughs> okay, maybe they do. I'm not insulting them. Whatever. Uh, I think that's a stupid idea. But... Um, a lot of times what they mean is like replace it with a new type of policing. Yeah, police would be there uh, in some form or another. It just might be restructured. But either way, I think that slogan, I think that concept is is dumb. You need to fix the institution we have already. You don't need to throw out the entire uh, concept. You know, the baby with the bathwater, as people say. But people like to do this and characterize the entire left as believing what like a handful of people believe. And of course, I'm sure this is done to the right at some points in time, but I think it's a little bit more dramatic going right to left because I try to recognize whenever one person's view is representative 
of an entire block of people's views. So when I talk about the radical far right, that's not me trying to select the most crazy part of the right and say, this is the entire right. No, 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 wait. I'm talking about Trump, who still is the most popular individual in the Republican Party. So it's not unfair to me, unfair for me to characterize the right as being the wrong things with Trump, right? Because he really is representative of much of the right and the views and the people they support. Pretending like the left wants to abolish the police is silly. And his statement that violence is the only thing that stops violence, that's not true either. But of course, at some point, you do need violence to stop violence. Uh, but flooding the streets with more guns is not the way to do that. So there is Ted Cruz. Uh, best moment, absolutely, was the first one I saw or first one I showed you where he gets laughed at by the crowd. So we talked previously about this incredibly bizarre moment from a Trump rally where music starts playing behind him while he's speaking and apparently it was a QAnon song. It tipped off the crowd to that fact and they started holding up the number one, possibly in reference to the QAnon slogan, where we go one, we go all or something. Uh, really weird, it's super culty. And uh, if you forgot, here's just a little bit of a reminder of that moment and then we have an interesting thing to discuss that happened more recently it was hard-working patriots like you who built this country and it is hard-working patriots like you who are going to save our country so you can we see will them. stand up to the radical left lunar holding up the one there okay well he had another rally recently and it looks like even him or the advisor around him didn't like the look of him giving that obvious of a supportive nod to the QAnon uh, movement and the QAnon conspiracy. So in this somewhat grainy video, you can see a security guard walking up to people holding up the number one and asking them to put their hands down. So I'll play it. Uh, and many other countries for oil. And I'll actually mute it. But you can see here to the left of the frame, people are holding up ones. And the security guard right here, sorry for our podcast listeners, you can just imagine it, walks up and says, put your hands down, uh, gives them a little hand signal to stop doing that. Um, and so that's wild to me that the image of all of these people in the crowd holding up a number one while music plays was too weird, was too yay for QAnon, even for the Trump team, that they have these security guards, uh, presumably at, at the Trump team's direction, asking people to put their hands uh, down, which is really, really fascinating. Here is a little image of these guys, uh, these security guys walking around, kind of patrolling the crowd, making sure they're not <laughs> giving their support to QAnon. Okay. I don't, again, I don't know why he felt the need to do that. I don't know why if he gave support with this weird QAnon song before and he's given a bunch of support on Truth Social, retweeting QAnon messages and stuff, why now he feels like he has to restrict people's ability to be so supportive of that movement. Um, it's already clear that he's an ally, but interesting moment there. And then second, really, really funny moment from this rally. And this will be the last thing we talk about in relation to this rally was. He misspeaks and accidentally says we need to make our country gay. I love it. Stop the destruction of our country and save the American dream. You must vote Republican. Joe Biden and the Democrat arsonists do not care one bit about the pain. and Arsonists? What are we talking about? Suffering. They're causing you, your family, or our once great country, remember I was going to say, I was going to use an expression, 
We have to keep our country gay, but, but it's not, <laughs> for some reason, it's just not great anymore. <laughs> I love that song. I love when he has those little uh, mess ups and it's like, <laughs> instead of just misspeaking, going, uh, I mean, great, he'll go, like, try to play it off. It's so funny. Let's do that one more time. Remember, I was going to say, I was going to use an expression. We have to keep our country gay, but it's not. I, mean, <laughs> I love that so much. We have to keep our country gay. Okay, one more time. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was going to say, I was going to use an expression. We have to keep our country gay, but it's not. I mean, for some reason, it's just not great. Any I love it so much. He was trying to say, keep our country great, but he said gay. And to me, it's not the fact that he said that. I misspeak all the time. It's the fact that he responded in such an uncomfortable, uh, uh, see, there we go, misspeaking, uncomfortable manner. Keep our country, get good, but, but. <laughs> oh, it's too good. Donald Trump thinks we should keep our country gay. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. I will see you tomorrow.